The following podcast may contain adult language and conversations revolving around situations not suitable for immature audiences. Spoilers and general political incorrectness can often be expected, so listener discretion is advised. They must be destroyed on sight! Hello, welcome once again to the Must Be Destroyed on Site, a movie podcast. Uh, I am back with my co-host, Daniel Harper. How are you doing, sir? Doing well. About to open a beer, so always doing better once that's open. What are you going to be drinking tonight? I've been drinking, I mean, it's kind of my, it's funny because I'm a beer geek, but I really don't exercise that this much these days. <laughs> I pretty much just drink my favorites, but, uh, you know, I buy uh, Two Hearted by the Case at Costco these days because my job gives me a membership. It's only like $30 a case or something like that. You know, Canada prices, that would be, you know, ridiculous. Yeah. But, nope, works out. So that's what I'm drinking right now. It's kind of what I drink almost every night these days because that's a deal you can't pass up. Are we doing a beer podcast again? This seems uh, very familiar. Uh, I I will throw a little bit in there. Why not? I always sort of assume that this podcast is fueled by alcohol at the very least so um <laughs> I'm, I'm drinking boxing rocks uh, sessionista bold session ale which is a new version of a previous release now at four percent it was at 4.5 percent before and actually it had a lot more flavor at that point so <laughs> as they often do yeah tonight we're going to be talking about uh villains our favorite film villains and we'll be definitely getting to that here soon First, before we get to comments, actually, we'll go to uh, what you've watched recently, Daniel. Well, I've got two, and um, one I actually saw in theaters. I saw the new Pixar movie, Inside Out. Okay. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm beginning to kind of be get a, get the impression that um, Pixar has been losing quality since the Disney buyout. Mm-hmm. Um, Inside Out is not a terrible movie. In fact, it's a good movie. But it's just a good movie, whereas, you know, back in the day, Pixar was, like, the gold standard for, you know, like, impeccable quality for movie after movie after movie. I was kind of walking into it, and my wife will tell you, um, I was walking into it expecting the first seven minutes of Up just over an entire movie, like, that level of just, you know, it is just going to hit you that hard. And so maybe, like, that expectation was a little bit high for it because it does have this nice kind of emotional resonance, and it is... A lot of fun. Um, I like the fact that it's got two female leads who are pretty much you follow throughout the, the film. Really, three if you count the little girl. Um, but uh, it's a perfectly fine movie. Um, I enjoyed it. I might see it again just to see if maybe my expectations were a little high the first time. Yeah. Um, but it definitely wasn't like insta classic the way I was kind of expecting it to be. Um, and so, but it's definitely worth seeing, particularly if you've got um, children or like if you need a date movie. It's a great. It'd be a great date movie. The other thing I uh, I rewatched recently was High Fidelity. Um, oh, this yeah. is uh, the movie from 2000. It uh, recently came on Netflix as a uh, you know for for watch instantly. And my wife and I were just sitting on the couch one night, and I just kind of went you know I do a lot of the like oh yeah we'll watch 30 minutes of this, and then we end up watching the whole movie. So um, uh, that's what we did. And uh, that's a film. I don't know. Have you seen that film recently at all? Uh, I haven't seen it recently, but uh, I do have fond memories of it. I I saw it theatrically when I was about when I was 20 when it came out. 
Um, and then I saw it in 2007 was the last time I rewatched it because that was right after I went through a bad breakup. And then I uh, just saw it again you know, recently. And uh, it's funny how my perception of that film in some ways and of the lead character has changed so much as I've gotten older. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's a credit to the film that when I saw it when I was 20, I was kind of on John Cusack's side in the film, you know, and kind of like, oh, yeah, man, come on, you know. Um, when I saw it when I was 27, I was kind of, oh, yeah, he's kind of a douche, but I'm still kind of on his side. And now I kind of see, like, man, that dude's an immature douchebag, like, for the entire course of the film. And uh, only <laughs> gradually starts to learn to be a responsible adult only in the last, like, five minutes of that film. Uh, yeah. But it is sort of one of those things that I think I've, I've grown with the film in a way, you know. Um, but I've also you... read the novel, so... Uh, but do you feel the uh, film still holds up for you, though, after all these oh, years? Yeah, no, I, I mean, absolutely. I think that, I mean, the point of the film is that John Cusack is supposed to be a douchebag. You know, like, like you're, not, you're not really supposed to root for him. I had a similar experience, and I think I discussed this on the podcast a little while ago, uh, rewatching Fight Club. Um, maybe six months ago or something like that. Uh, I got to see that on the big screen and seeing that again after several years and thinking like when I was 19 or whatever when that movie came out and thinking, man, this is really like saying some, you know, it's not a perfect movie, but it kind of says some interesting things about, you know, culture and about, you know, masculinity and all this sort of thing. And now I'm like, man, those guys are douchebags and terrorists. You know, like it's uh, <laughs> it's much more clear to me with the um, with my own maturity and with the way that the culture has changed in the last uh, couple of decades. Some of this, some of the stuff is, uh, I don't know, it's it's interesting. Um, if you haven't seen some of these films in a while, it's worth revisiting them, especially if you saw them originally. So, you know, that that's kind of my perspective. I don't know. Uh, movies that have changed as you've gotten older might be a, a, an interesting topic for the uh, podcast. You know, that that would be yeah, that'd be a good one to uh, look into. Definitely, but I uh, definitely see High Fidelity if you're uh, if you're interested in that sort of thing. I mean, it does have I mean just an amazing soundtrack, um, if nothing else, and yeah. it's such a portrait of this kind of like what geek culture can be. You know, of both of of its positive in terms of bringing people together. And in terms of the the kind of response to outsiders, you know, like, uh, and it's Jack Black before he was really annoying, you know. It's That's interesting to see yeah. Jack Black doing the same shtick that he's kind of doing now, but like back when it was fresh and original and yeah. not. Not family friendly, you know. That's, so. that's one of his first. Uh, well, it's not one of his first film appearances, but it's it's one of the ones where his sort of persona now had, w- was being established. It's also it's also proof that um, Jack Black works best as a supporting actor. You know, like I like, agree. You know, yeah. That that persona, like uh, at full length, is is not necessarily as as entertaining as I think you know the. Hollywood machine pretended it was for a while. So, mm. um, but he's really good. I mean, everybody's really good in this movie. It's it's absolutely worth seeing. I just recently saw that that did pop up on Netflix, and I just haven't gotten around to watching it. But I am going to be rewatching it. So, it's uh, it's one of those worth rewatching if you're um, if you're bored on a Friday night, as I was. Yeah, uh, I totally blanked on shit I watched, and it's weird because I actually watched like a whole hell of a lot of movies in the last week or so. Uh, but I just totally blanked on everything I've watched. But we do have some comments, and we're going to get to... Uh, this should take up a little bit of time, actually, because we do have one really lengthy comment, which is pretty good. Uh, but first, comment from a uh, mutual friend, Jameson. He he commented on our uh, Sex Comedies Part 8, uh, which was our Revenge of the Nerds uh, episode, the final part of our series. Guys, topical and more recent, stuff people care about? LOL, guys, please, something even remotely cool. <laughs> we don't do anything cool in this podcast, or I don't. Yeah, you maybe you guys do, but uh, no, nobody ever accused me of being cool. So, uh, sorry, Jameson. 
Yeah, I, I believe I responded to him that uh, basically uh, we we're not really interested in uh, that sort of shit on this podcast. We're just we we do what we want and we don't give a fuck if people think it's cool or not. But uh, thanks for the comment, Jameson. Good to see you're uh, actually running around YouTube again and actually doing stuff. At some point, hopefully, maybe get you on the podcast and talk about some cool movies. Uh, yeah, you you pick a movie, Jameson. What do you want to listen to us talk about? That's what I also asked him. I suggested, uh, give some suggestions, sir. Suggest some movies you want to see us do because we're open to that sort of thing. So our friend Ryan Rashawn, he commented on our Christopher Lee episode. He basically just said we did a really good job. He also commented on a, a, one of my other videos where he talked about the podcast. Uh, he said that uh, at some point, if we were going to do any sort of, um, Jesus Christ, I'm blanking on his fucking name now. Why do I forget this guy's last name now? Uh, Spaceballs, Young Frankenstein. Mel Brooks, there we go. Uh, he said if we we're ever going to do like a, a Mel Brooks episode, he definitely wants to be in on it. So um, I would love to do a Mel Brooks episode. No, yeah. uh, you're going to be tagged for that, uh, dude. You you have to show up. I mean, I know you're on the West Coast and all that shit, but and we do this pretty late, so you're going to have to put a lot of coffee into you and then a lot of beer into you afterwards when we do the episode. Yeah, it's like eight o'clock his time, like eight p.m. Like he could totally be on this podcast right now. <laughs> you know, he chose to be. Except he's probably doing something way more fun than like you know chatting about movies on a on a Friday night. So well, he's, he's he's a busy man. He's got breweries trying to take his home brew recipes and ruin them, and he's got uh, all kinds of other stuff he's doing. So I mean, yeah, he again two people that we know who are both way way cooler than us. That's just... yeah. <laughs> so uh, here we go. This this is uh, this should bring up uh, I think some good responses here, and this is from constant listener greg bylog he says well-spoken arguments about the first movie gentlemen i do have a, fir- a few thoughts and this is relating back to uh, the revenge of the nerds regarding the sexual assault stuff in this movie i think everything needs to be taken in context the fact is half these characters would be criminals in real life and would be serving lengthy prison prison sentences hell throwing someone out of a window would probably kill them or at least fuck them up for life so i think it's unfair to pick on a particular type of criminal behavior or something because it's more a hot-button issue than the nerd getting thrown out window. I'm someone who despises rapists in real life and believe they should have their balls cut off, but in a movie where no one is actually harmed, I don't see an issue with it at all. It was used as a plot device, a bit a poor one, and in the context of this movie, it had its place. He says, in terms of the potential racism, that was something I never really thought about, and after listening to Daniel's thoughts on it, makes a lot of sense. However, I still don't really have a problem with it. We all have stereotypes and prejudices. Anyone who says they don't isn't being truthful. It doesn't mean you and I are bigots, as that involves a degree of hatred towards another group of people. It just means that different groups of different people have quirks, and some of these movies chose to make fun of them in a lighthearted way. One of my favorite comedies of all time, Blazing Saddles, did just that, and hey, that goes back to Mel Brooks, uh, although with much greater success than Revenge of the Nerds. This is something I really miss about the 70s and 80s, as they just didn't give a shit about being politically correct, and the writers and directors had more freedom to create their films, good or bad, instead of everything having to go through a committee. I don't think anything, no matter how taboo or controversial, should ever uh, basically shed away from, as long as nobody is ever, ever actually harmed in real life. For example, the animal cruelty 
in cannibal movies, and this is talking like cannibal movies from Italy from like the 70s and early 80s, is something he can never accept, even as art. Uh, is He said, it is for this reason that when they eventually remake this movie, it won't be anything like the original. It'll be toned down, given a PG rating, and made fun for the whole family. That's not what movies like this are about. They're rated R for a reason. Looking at a movie like the Robocop remake, which taken in a vacuum isn't a terrible movie, but just cannot stand up to the incredible original, which wasn't afraid to shock and offend people. The first Revenge of the Nerds isn't a masterpiece by any means, but I think it still holds up well today. Revenge of the Nerds 2 does not, as it just isn't a very good movie. It also shows how the late 80s was already at a point where the excesses of the early to mid-80s were being watered down. They toned down everything to get that PG-13 rating, which is a clear move to make more money at the expense of good comedy. And he says, another random thought, I thought most of the women from the Moo hosts were more attractive than the cheerleader hosts. And that's the end of his comment. <laughs> well, there's there's a lot to unpack there, you know, honestly. I, I, I read this comment, actually, because I have been starting to check the comments just to kind of see what I might... Yeah, just to really to see if there is hate mail, as I expect there is, to things that I say on this podcast. <laughs> Um, if that's as close as we get, then you know I think I think uh, I, I'm not doing enough to offend the audience. That's really uh, kind of my oh, well. philosophy. Do you have anything to say to that? I could go through that like almost line for line and respond to it, but I mean let's let's just discuss the issues, I guess. I generally agree with him, but this is coming from a person who, when I say this, I'm not saying that you're easily offended by anything, Daniel. I'm just saying that. I, I don't take these things as seriously in movies like Revenge of the Nerds, for example, as I would mm-hmm. like another movie. So I, I can de- I can generally agree with uh, Greg on a lot of this stuff. Um, I, I, I definitely see where he's coming from, where a lot of these movies, like, for instance, like The Van, I mean, you got your ginger rapist in, the, in that movie, but it, it's not taken seriously at all and it's not meant to make any sort of social points or anything like that so it's kind of unfair in a way to deconstruct that movie in a modern sense and try to put uh, weight on it that wasn't intended in the first place, I think. Sure. Big picture, again, you know, I could deconstruct this in detail, but I'm, I'm not going to spend an hour doing that. First of all, politically correct, I know that, you know, the beginning of this podcast kind of, you know, that your intro says, you know, don't expect political correctness, mm-hmm. which, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with. I mean, I, I love being on this podcast. I love co-hosting it with you. Politically correct is, is often just another, word, another way of saying politeness. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't think that we have to be uh, – there, there's a difference between uh, saying, you know, there may be material that people will find offensive and going out of your way to, to offend for no reason. As far as the issue of whether it's intentional or unintentional, I mean, I think part of what I try to do when I talk about films is – especially historical films, you know, things that are – you know, and, and it's funny to say Revenge of the Nerds is a historical film, but it's 31 years old. A lot of what I find interesting about these discussions is to look at not just what the filmmakers are trying to say, but what they are saying unintentionally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, I mean, the comparison to Mel Brooks, I think, is well, particularly Blazing Saddles, which is not my favorite Mel Brooks film because it's just a little over overtly cartoony in a way that I think that. Um, but it, Mel Brooks's Blazing Saddles is trying to use racist stereotypes to make fun of racist people. Yeah. Whereas the Asian guy in Revenge of the Nerds is just an Asian stereotype. Yeah. There's no commentary on that stereotype. 
if he was pretending to be this Asian stereotype so he would feel accepted by the group, and you could still kind of do all the kind of silly, you know, camera jokes or, you know, whatever, the, the, uh, the royal thrush or whatever, and <laughs> you could still kind of have that laugh line, but you could also put it into a larger context. So I talk about these things because it's clear that the filmmakers are using this trope without, you know, without seemingly without realizing what they're doing with it. And the reason I talk about the, the sexual assault stuff in this is because I think that the culture at large, particularly with something like Revenge of the Nerds, I think that like nerd culture has absorbed the lessons of this film in a, in a bad way. I think that this is something that the film is saying, is that our hero got to go fuck this girl, and he got a, a hot-looking girlfriend because he tricked her into sleeping with him. And, I mean, I have met people who essentially believe that, well, you know, if I'm persistent and if I, you know, can do these things, then they will want to be with me, and there's nothing wrong with feeling her up because she's going to like it later or whatever. It's it's really toxic. If, if it was just a kind of nothing film that nobody cared about, then I wouldn't mind. It's it's not the film necessarily. It's what was going on in the culture around the film. So that that's and, my defense, you know. And uh, that's, that's perfectly valid. You, you make a good point that comparing this to, say, The Van, which mm-hmm. is a movie that maybe, basically everyone's forgotten about, so it, it's yeah. not it's not a culturally revel, uh, relevant film that has influenced the way people think about anything. Well, and even in something like The Van, I felt it was important to kind of bring this up as a genre trope. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, the fact that the, the, the rape in The Van is treated as just like, oh, ha-ha, you know. He, he tried to rape this girl, but it was fine because he was wearing falsies and she was lying to him the whole time. Ha ha! Look at how funny that is. You know, two two kind of modern liberal, more enlightened eyes. It's it's almost you almost have you have to ignore the rape. You have to ignore the gravity of what rape actually is in order to get that joke. There are comedians and there are movies that can do rape and do it in a way that is funny. I mean, Louis C.K. has rape humor. That is, I mean, frankly, hilarious because it does not diminish the, you know, the point is, what am I going to do? Like, uh, I mean, he tells a joke where it's like, you really shouldn't rape anybody. I mean, I mean, that's just horrible. I mean, unless you want to have sex with them and they won't have sex with you. I mean, then, of course, you should rape them. I mean, you know, um, and he tells that joke because it's like, and, you know, the point of that is to say, wow, rape is really terrible. It's not just like using it as a cheap punchline. And, yeah. you know, I'm of the opinion that an artist can say whatever the fuck they want to say. And that's a filmmaker, a comedian, a YouTube commenter, us on this podcast. Say whatever you want, but understand that your words and what you say, other people get to respond to that, and other people are going to have feelings about that. And it's not necessarily the message that you intended. I, I think Greg makes a good point about that as well, where he says basically he wants that sort of thing to come back to films where mm-hmm. stuff is not put through a committee anymore, where they're not worrying about offending people because of the bottom line of mm-hmm. dollars. That he, he wants filmmakers to be able to say whatever they want, good or bad, mm-hmm. uh, and, and put it into public discourse and have the people actually watching decide whether this is acceptable or not. And I wholeheartedly agree with him on that point. I, I absolutely agree with that. I am in no sense um, advocating censorship of any medium, whether it be a the commercial censorship of the MPAA, for instance, or the uh, you know legal government 
censorship of, you know, I'm not advocating any of that. I'm not saying that everything has to run through any kind of PC police or, or moral authority or, or whatever. But I do think it's important that, you know, these conversations stay open. And a lot of times what people mean when they say, well, I'm just telling a joke and I'm just being politically incorrect is I get to say what I want and I don't want you to tell me that you don't like it. You know, there there is that sense, and and from some um, kind of shock comedians and that sort of thing. So, yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, that that's my feeling on it. I would love to see more kind of hard R rated comedies out there. I would love to see more um, discussion of these issues. Honestly, I mean, I I mean, I used the word nigger on the last podcast episode, and I just used it now, and I use it with understanding that you know people will not like me using that word. But I use it in a sense that is, I think, valuable and, and worthwhile. I mean, I'm perfectly willing to take criticism for that mm-hmm. because I made a choice to use the word in that way. So, you know, <laughs> that's all I got to say about that. <laughs> yeah, no, that was ex- that was excellent. Uh, thanks very much, Greg, and thanks for Oh, yeah, much- absolutely. I do appreciate the comment, and I always love I'm, – I'm not trying to uh, belittle the comment at all uh, by responding in that way. Yeah, so, and thanks very much, Greg. Thanks very much, Ryan and Jameson. Uh, Ryan, uh, we will get back to you at some point when we uh, – We'll, we'll we'll plan this all together. We'll probably do a hangout at some point and drink beer and plan this all together for like a Mel Brooks episode at some point. Uh, it's been too long since we've done a hangout together anyway. So yeah, yeah, we could do yeah. Mel Brooks in 1974, just Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein. Hey, that would that would be an excellent fucking episode. I mean, <laughs> you can't go wrong with either one of those movies. So. Actually, my wife and I were talking, and um, if you ever wanted her on the podcast, she would love to do Spaceballs. Oh, she'd like to do Spaceballs? Yep. Yeah, because we, we were talking uh, before, and we were talking about doing some... Um, God damn, I'm just bad for fucking names tonight. Uh, Pink Flamingos and stuff like oh, that. Oh, John Waters. John Waters. Yeah, 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 yeah John yeah. Waters. Yeah, we were, we were thinking about like doing a John Waters episode at some point and getting uh, Shana on. Uh, if she wants to do space balls, hell yeah, we could get her on and do space balls as well. No problem. I'm sure she'd come on for the whole full Mel Brooks experience if you wanted to do like three Mel Brooks. Oh sh- shit, yeah, we'll get fucking uh, Ryan and her on and do a do a foursome. I, I, I'm, sure, I'm, I'm sure we'd be fine with that. Yeah, no, <laughs> I think Ryan might be the holdout in that situation. Ah, uh, well, <laughs> we'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll are, we, are we even on the air anymore? Like <laughs> this all gets edited out. I'm sure. Uh, it's nothing's getting edited uh, at this point. Just ums and ahs. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So uh, we're going to get into the uh, main sort of meat of this episode, I guess. And we're going to be talking about movie villains, our favorite movie villains. Uh, we're just going to be basically taking turns, thro- uh, taking turns, throwing out villain names from movies that we really love. And we're going to talk about them. I think we might get into some discussions about whether they necessarily are really villains Mm-hmm. Uh, depending on you know what movie they're in and the context of when the movie was released and how it plays now today, definitely have. I, I know I have a huge list. I I was trying to keep it small, but now I have a shitload of stuff on here, and yeah. I I know Daniel's got like twenty or so on his list. Got, I actually just added one as we were talking because I thought of it and thought, oh, how did I not think of that guy? You know, <laughs> I, I literally what I did with it when I made this list is I just sat with a notebook and just started writing down names. And like literally, I was like, well, I'll just start deleting them. And then I was just like, eh, maybe I'll just not say some of them on the podcast, because there are a few that are kind of, eh. I would literally just kind of hemorrhage it out, you know. To, yeah, I... I, I without I, research. Like, I didn't, like, look shit up. It was literally, you know, because I just started going through, what's my, who are my obvious ones? Who are the ones that I have to say? Mm-hmm. And trying also to not, like, Hannibal Lecter isn't on this list. 
Darth Vader isn't on this list. So I tried to go not super obscure. Some of them are more obvious than others, but like I tried to kind of go a little deeper than that. All right, so uh, Daniel, I'll let you go first and throw to throw to pick. Just to get this out of the way, just so that uh, you don't get to take this one, um, because this is one of my favorite <laughs> movie villains, Henry Fonda in Once Upon a Time in the West, uh, one of the great uh, revisionist uh, 60s westerns, great villain performance, those piercing blue eyes, shoots a kid in his very first shot. Uh, what yeah. else can we say? They don't make him like that anymore. The best thing about that movie, and I'm sure we're going to review it at some point, that movie is all about sort of the mythology of the modern American Western. He is basically the basically the archetype, the culmination of all bad guys in, in Westerns to that point. Mm. He is just a stone-cold psychopath, and it's so good because it's the juxtaposition of the fact that this is a guy who was a beloved hero in movies. Like, he had maybe played a villain maybe once or twice in his entire mm. career before then. Other than that, this is the guy who played Abraham Lincoln... This is the 12 Angry Men. This is the hero from 12 Angry Men. Like, and if yeah. you, you know, for me, if you want to see, like, Henry Fonda, you know, put these back to back. This is who this man was as an actor. You know, that that's all you got to say about that. This this is him playing that, taking all that warmth and humanity and that kind of moral rectitude that he shows in so many of his other roles and just turning it completely on its head and mm-hmm. doing this icy, cold, steel, blue-eyed killer and yeah. showing just how, just how those... Uh, just how menacing that can be. Um, it's, a, it's an amazing performance, an amazing role. And uh, getting into you know the question of what really is a villain, you could argue that the um, I, you know encroach of civilization into the West is the real villain of Once Upon a Time in the West. Yeah. Um, Man, I don't really want to get into it too much because I'm kind of anticipating doing an episode on it. At some yeah. Point. Well, okay. So we shouldn't we shouldn't talk. But yeah, you know, for me, you know, I as I was making this list, I realized that so many of my favorite films don't really have a clear villain mm-hmm. that, the, that the heroes are battling some larger institutional force or some, like, like it's it's more um, amorphous. Yeah. And so, you know, for instance, one of the great heroes in movie history is Gregory Peck and To Kill a Mockingbird, you know, is Atticus yeah. Finch. But he's not fighting, I mean, there is, you know, Tom Ewell is the, the villain of that, but that's not really who Atticus is. Atticus is fighting the vestige, you know, the huge structure, the superstructure of of racism in the South in the 30s, you know. Mm-hmm. But racism in the South in the 30s is not like a name you can put down on a list of greatest villains. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it's, it's interesting kind of thinking about what makes, you know, that, that often you think, like, the great hero has a great villain, like there's this Manichean kind of battle going on. Many of our great heroes don't really have great villains fighting them, and some of our great villains are fighting, don't really have a hero that's standing up against them. So I do, I, I did kind of notice that making this list. Anyway, um, yeah. that's my uh, philosophical conversation. For the yeah, because in Once Upon a Time in the West, like, Frank is definitely a villain you can identify with. Like, you can, he stands out, but really the biggest villain in that film is actually Progress, because that's what's killing everybody in that film. Um, right. They, because that film's about a, a, a change in society altogether, and it's heralded in by the train uh and morton is the closest personification of that sort of progress in the film but even mm-hmm. he's a pathetic tragic figure i think the first one i'm going to pick is scorpio played by andrew robison in uh dirty harry from 1971 sure and 
and he is a serial killer based on the Zodiac killer, the psychopath this guy creates in this film. And and Andrew Robinson is a pacifist. Like he 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 is a self avowed sort of pacifist. He was basically given the task to create this really, really off the wall nuts serial killer that was just totally against his nature, and he was allowed to improvise quite a bit. I, I'd say the the one scene that uh, really stands out is when he's in the bus full of children and he's mm-hmm. threatening them, threaten them with a gun. Very, very fucking scary throughout the first part of the movie he's sniping people there some stuff comes into this about uh the protection of the rights of criminals in this movie mm-hmm. where he he basically gets off scot-free because you know he's he's a victim of society and the cops are victimizing them and just just a great performance a great villain a very memorable villain and a, a good counterpoint to uh clint eastwood's dirty harry callahan who is uh verging on the edge of becoming a vigilante himself because he can no longer work within the uh, justice system as it's uh, structured. Absolutely. And uh, again, this kind of gets into, I mean, you know, what makes a villain. There is certainly a reading of this film where Mm -hmm. you could say that Dirty Harry is himself a villain in this film. Yeah. Um, That a uh, a rogue cop willing to uh, do the things that Dirty Harry does in this film is just as dangerous, if not more so, than the serial killer himself. Um, so so you could, you know, without defending the actions of the serial killer, obviously, you mm-hmm. know, um, there, there is that kind of that kind of line where um, I, I, there is a kind of the, the leftist, there is kind of this leftist conversation around Dirty Harry. I mean, it calls Dirty Harry, like the message of the film is ultimately a fascist message. Mm-hmm. That, you know, what we need is a strong law and order without like a... Um, without, you know, kind of moral limits that is not answerable to sane society yeah. who will keep the bad guys away from us. And um, as we have learned from, you know, Ferguson, Missouri and uh, many other places, that's not at all what we what we want from our from our police forces. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm going to not talk about that every time we mention a villain, but I, I think a lot of the ones on my list kind of work on that same level of, you know, Depending on how you view it, Clint Eastwood is also a villain in that film. I actually have one that kind of works in that same way. I'll just go ahead and throw that one in now. I actually have two actors who are opposing one another in this film, and you're going to laugh when you hear the the names because it's going to be a laugh of recognition. But uh, if you've seen the film In the Loop... Uh, I don't think I've seen that, actually, no. In the Loop is a uh, political movie. It's it's kind of a uh, satirized version of the run-up to the war in Iraq, right? Okay. Um, it's a British film. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 okay. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> and it's based on The Thick of It, which was the TV show yeah. at the time. Yeah, okay. And it's kind yeah. of an extension from that, but it's got some other stuff. But uh, you're, you're laughing now because I'm going to say Peter Capaldi is yes. the protagonist of that film, and he's the current Doctor of Doctor Who because I do a Doctor Who podcast, so he's always in my mind. But I actually discovered him here first. I saw in the loop, and I'm like, this guy mm-hmm. is amazing. Peter Capaldi is sort of the protagonist of the film, but James Gandolfini is opposing him. Yeah. But James Gandolfini is actually kind of on the side of what we now would recognize as right and good and, like, opposing the war and all that sort of thing. So depending on whether you view the villain as the person who is kind of of moral rectitude or the person opposing the protagonist, depending on how you view a villain, they're kind of both villains, but neither one is really a villain. But, yeah, it, you know, it, it it comes down to which one you think is more detestable, honestly. Right. <laughs> because Absolutely. 
Capaldi is just a piece of shit of a person. Like he 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 is just the most disagreeable, nastiest, venom spewing person you could think of possibly. I mean, he has no respect for anybody. He just he just basically verbally knocks people down in almost a poetic way with his insults. He has, he has the most creative swearing I've ever seen in a movie. Uh, <laughs> It's amazing, like the writing, but also his performance is just amazing. Yeah. And when, uh, I mean, and James Gandolfini, totally, like, they have one scene together in a bar where mm-hmm. they're trading kind of, you know, veiled barbs, basically, that are not really that veiled. I mean, they are just going at each other with words and, like, intention and meaning. And when James Gandolfini died, that was the moment that I thought of him. Like, you know, when you say, like, what is your James Gandolfini moment? People go to The Sopranos or they go to some other things. But for me, it was right there, that scene with Peter Capaldi and In the Loop. So um, definitely see that movie. You should see that movie. Yeah, I actually have seen it. I I just, I totally forgot about it. I forgot the name and everything, but I was like, oh yeah, shit, yeah, fuck. (laughs) Uh, My next pick will be uh, Little Bill Daggett, uh, played by Gene Gene Hackman in the movie Unforgiven from 1992. I just really loved his uh, characterization in this. He's much like Clint Eastwood's character in this. He's a survivor of the gunfighter era. Um, but he is a stone-cold psychopath, and he is basically controlling a, a town with a stranglehold. He he is very much the sort of uh, kind of fascist kind of character in a, in a lot of ways, but at the same time, he, he, he doesn't think he's bad at all. Like, this is a guy who is uh, more worried about building his deck for his house that he's going to retire in and all this stuff. It's kind of pathetic, almost. I just I just found him incredibly menacing, uh, incredibly vicious, uh, and what made that performance so great is that he thought he was totally in the right. Everything he was doing was justified, even up to the point where he basically whips Morgan Freeman to death uh, to get information out of him to try to find Clint Eastwood's character. So, yeah, uh, ironically, I have uh, not seen Unforgiven. So, oh really? Um, yeah, no, uh, it's one. I know it's a classic. I actually um, saw the last ten minutes of it or so on uh, like HBO or something uh, many years yeah. ago, and I went, "Oh, this is a fucking movie I got to see." But I have um, not actually seen the film, which uh, so I I don't really have commentary on it because I haven't seen it. But uh, everything I've heard is that it's amazing, and that definitely should be a movie I need to see. Like, uh, it's a great performance. It's it. I think it's one that sort of gave uh, Hackman a bit. Of, bit of a career re- resurgence um, because this, this was a guy who was the fucking boss in the 70s. Like, up with him and like Donald Sutherland and guys like that who were just kicking out great movies in the 70s left mm-hmm. and right. And then he comes back and does this and he plays one of the most believable, normal, everyday kind of psychopaths you can think of. Like just so believable. Like you, you just totally buy that this guy could have existed. It's a, it's a really great villain, a really great performance, and I'll leave it at that. I'll do an obvious one. Anthony Perkins and Psycho. Okay, yeah, yeah. I talked about this movie not that long ago, but it's kind of one of those like classic villain performances. I don't know that I need to say anything more than that. Anthony Perkins and Psycho, one of the greatest villains of all time. That gives a good uh, intro uh, to one of my picks here, which is one I believe maybe informed Psycho to maybe a small, small degree. And Mark Lewis, who played, uh, who was played by Carl uh, Boehm in Peeping Tom in 1959, which was a year before Psycho. Peeping Tom, a very disturbing movie, but very much in the same vein as a sort of a, a sexual killer to some some extent. 
Anthony Perkins, he's, you know, dressing up as his mother and, and killing women. This killer in Peeping Tom, he photographs women while he's killing them. And then he just discards women like trash and in, literally into dumpsters and stuff like that. Very, very shocking for 1959, like incredibly shocking for 1959, I think. And it was a movie that was kind of railroaded and kind of buried as opposed to Psycho, which basically sort of gained like worldwide uh, exposure. And I think I think Peeping Tom is actually an incredibly great fucking film. And I think it's somewhere near the level of Psycho, and it's uh, kind of widely forgotten to some degree. Another one that's been on my list to see for years, but I have not seen it, so I'm yeah. just going to leave it at that. Um, I'll do another one from the 50s, though, if you're uh, mm-hmm. ready, and this is another kind of knocking off the obvious ones here. Um, Robert Mitchum, Night of the Hunter. Yeah, okay, that's that's a great one. Um, uh, ironically, I am not a uh, massive fan of the film, um, mm-hmm. I think it's got some great moments. This is a film I'd love to discuss in detail at some point, like actually do this film. I think that the strength of the um, this performance in particular, Robert Mitchum's performance, kind of overshadows some of the narrative issues that the film has and some of the uh, just some of the choices that the filmmakers made. But it, it's such an amazing performance, and it's been uh, you know kind of copied and parodied so many times. I mean, you know, even like. Do the right thing, you know, has the the love and hate on the uh, the knuckles sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, The Simpsons is, has parodied this thing, you know, a billion times and, and all that sort of thing. So, um, but yeah, if you haven't seen Night of the Hunter, it's absolutely worth seeing. And this performance is just one of the all time classic villain performances. Yeah, that's. I think that's the thing that sells the movie even more than the movie itself is definitely the performance. Uh, Robert Mitchum. Basically, if you're not familiar with it, he he plays a guy who pretends to be a priest. Who goes around marrying women and killing them for their for their money? Uh, that that is his thing, and in this movie, the tension is the fact that although he kills the woman, the children are still alive, and he's trying to catch them and hunt them down and kill them. And he plays one of the great screen villains, very very uh, monstrous, very very casual. Got has a singing voice of an angel. <laughs> singing yes. his singing his little songs, um, and yeah, I, I think we will do an episode on this film at some point. So I won't get any any more into it, but it is one of the classic villain performances. And uh, actually, I'll just let that segue into one of my picks, which is uh, Max Cady from the original uh, Cape Fear, also played by Robert Mitchum. A, a great performance. Uh, here you have a criminal who uh, lives by the code, an eye for an eye to an extreme degree. Very laid back. Like the guy's like a goddamn lizard laying on a beach somewhere in the sun. Like he he is very laid back, quiet. The way he harasses Gregory Peck and his family, uh, the lawyer who put him in jail, who perhaps did some shenanigans to put him in jail. You know, there's there's a bit of a little bit of a comment on the justice system there as well. I mean, there. There's no doubt that Robert Mitchum's a piece of shit. He's a, he's a rapist. He's a psychopath. Incredibly disgusting. The way he tries to in the remake, especially where Robert De Niro plays him, where he try the character where he tries to seduce seduce the daughter character, which is absolutely fucking repulsive. He, he's he's just all bad. Although he's very uh, reserved and laid back. When he explodes into violence, he really does. Like, there's there's a scene where Gregory Peck's character tries to hire people to beat him up. He he takes his he takes his whooping, but he delivers like it back in spades. Like he's just he's tough, he's bad, he's a piece of garbage, and he's one of the great screen villains as far as I'm concerned. So. Yeah, I do not even think of that one, but yeah, no, that is uh, 
that is a, a great performance and a, and a great film. Sticking with the 50s here, Orson Welles and Touch of Evil. Yeah, that was one of my as lists. The, as the uh, uh, corrupt sheriff. Yeah, he's... Um... We were talking earlier offline about the uh, the kind of um, vaguely racist uh, caricatures <laughs> uh, and white people, and, and uh, but I uh, you know, didn't even think of that when I made the list, but yeah, no, that's probably an example, yeah, but... Uh, Amazing performance. I decided I only got to choose one Orson Welles performance, and this yeah. is the one I chose. Yeah, um, he's, because uh, I could pretty much go down the list. You know, arguably Charles Foster Kane is the villain of Citizen Kane. So you know, yeah, Captain Captain Hank Quinlan, who basically plays a border policeman, like right on the Mexican border, a white border policeman, and he is—he's a piece of garbage. <laughs> Look, yeah. he, he he is a guy who—he's uh, a dirty cop who plants evidence to uh, convict criminals. I I think the worst part of that film is that his uh, partner is enamored with him. Like, his partner thinks he's the greatest thing ever. He's a hero. And in very much in his reputation, he is a hero to a lot of his fellow cops because they just don't realize how bad he is. And it's up to Charlton Heston playing a Mexican... Uh, very badly, by the way. I it's mean, a great performance, it but is. he's not a Mexican. Like, yeah, he's, he's not Mexican at all. But uh, I can forgive that because uh, it is a great performance, and basically it's his efforts to expose Quinlan as the piece of garbage he is, and eventually yep. he does get his comeuppance, but it's a great performance. And at that point, um, Orson Welles was physically not in his best shape, I think it just added to the character. He just yeah. sloth. He makes and, it work, you know. Yeah. I mean, he's physically, I mean, he's physically disgusting alongside being, you know. Uh, yeah, you know. It's, it's a real banality of evil kind of thing at that point, this sloth yeah. and everything all combined together, and it's a great performance. That's a really good pick. Yeah, ironically, I mean, again, just kind of going back, you could kind of argue that Touch of Evil is the uh, is kind of sort of the response twelve years earlier, thirteen years earlier to Dirty Harry. That, yeah. that you know this this is the this is what this guy looks like in the real world or in some other version of you know. Anyway, just throwing that out there. Um, mm-hmm. And then that was that was essentially the end of the uh, classic noir period as well. Yeah. The, the film, so yeah, uh, film noir is one of my favorite genres uh, visually. I mean, when I think of villains, I always think film noir because like everybody's kind of a villain in film noir. But I didn't throw a, I didn't really didn't throw a lot on this list. But Orson Welles' Touch of Evil was my like go to for that. I'll go with Noah Cross, played by John Huston in Chinatown from '74. Oh, yes. Here, here, here's pretty much the baddest of the bad and a believable bad. This is a guy who rapes and impregnates his own daughter. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. He he murders his partner, um, who happens also to be his son-in-law. And overall, the the overall sort of plot of the film is him basically strangling Los Angeles to death, which is it's almost uh, topical today, really, because of the water supply problem yep. in California. Uh, he he is he's putting a stranglehold on the water supply in Los Angeles, and the worst thing about it is he actually gets away with his crimes. Yeah, arguably, you know, this is the sort of thing of um, you know, the, Chinatown, one of the great films mm-hmm. ever made. I would argue, um, probably Polanski's best. I agree. Although I really love Knife in the Water, one of his early films. But I mean, yeah, I would I would probably argue that Chinatown is his greatest film. Great performance. I mean, I was thinking the, the funny thing is, you know, I was thinking of Chinatown as like, oh, great villain, and completely like overlooked John Huston in the film. Yeah. Because for me, it's one of those institutional forces kind of kind of films. It's 
you know, John Huston is the personification in a lot of ways, like if you look metaphorically, of the kind of the, the sinister cabal of bureaucrats that are building this, you know, water system. Arguably, you could say, well, yeah, but Los Angeles wouldn't exist without this thing being, having been built. But at the same time, what did they do in order to make it? And, you know, it is kind of one of those, we are all complicit in this sort of <laughs> points because our modern world yeah. is built on these kinds of trade-offs. And, and uh, you know, that's, that's you know, late-stage capitalism for you. But, um, yeah, no, great performance in a, in a great film. Let's talk about the ladies. Should we talk All right. about the ladies? Yeah, um, I got some ladies on my list, yeah. Sure, I'm, I'm interested to see because, you know, again, you go through this list and, and part of the institutional sexism of, of, you know, the entertainment industry is uh, simply that women don't get these roles very often. Mm-hmm. Um, it's true. Uh, I was trying, I mean, I was specifically like, I need to put some women, I need to put some people of color on this list, but it's a bunch of mostly dead white guys, honestly, you know, <laughs> um, because, you know, those are the people that really get those those juicy roles. One of the smaller films and one of the smaller roles that I'm definitely going to throw in here is um, if you've ever seen the uh, Sam Raimi film, A Simple Plan. Yes, yeah. Um, Bridget Fonda, um, mm-hmm. arguably, you know, when you first see her, she's this loving housewife, she's pregnant, she's uh, all these things that you want from, you know, middle-class existence. Yep. And uh, once there's money involved, she she turns dark and cold and calculating, and and she's really the one running, the, driving the plot, driving the driving the kind of the, the evil mastermind kind of plot side of it. Um, mm-hmm. Another film that, that a lot of people have kind of forgotten these days, but um, phenomenal film and an amazing performance. I, I like how she 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 basically changes on a dime. Like the film makes a point that people aren't necessarily what you think they are. You, you are comfortable with people around you. You you think you know them, but when an opportunity or some sort of situation like this comes about, you really start to see maybe perhaps people's true colors. So you get like Bill Paxton's character who didn't quite realize who he married. <laughs> and and right. he and and Bill, Bill Paxton usually he usually plays the scumbag in a lot of films. Like he 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 has a pretty good track record of playing really not necessarily bad people, but people who are you know morally bankrupted to some degree. Like the Here giant he, piece of shit in Weird Science. Like let's just yeah. <laughs> But here he's almost, he's he's kind of treated as a pawn. Like he has his wife push him around, and well, uh, the, the the film is kind of arguable. I mean, not arguably. I think the film is definitely about you know ordinary people whose mm-hmm. morals have never really been tested, who have never really mm-hmm. had to make these decisions, as most of us haven't. Like mo- you know, I've never found four million dollars in the middle of the woods. You know? I mean, I think I would do the right thing, and I think we all do. But but so many of us have never have simply never been tested in that way. And it is about like, well, in theory, you go, well, of course I'd take it to the cops. But then once it's sitting on your dining room table, what do you really do? You know, what do you really do? You know, the fact that. Uh, yeah, no, it, it really is about like ordinary people being pushed to this evil because they chose to do this. This, this was completely a choice that these people made, you know. Yeah. And um, again, you know, the, the banality of evil stuff, which you were mentioning earlier, um, very much part of this film. Although this was sort of the era where he was giving great performances left and right, that is Billy Bob Thornton's best performance as far as I'm concerned. I, I love that I would performance. Agree. I would agree. That's a phenomenal. I mean, it, he's... I would say unrecognizable, but that's not really true. But again, this is this is the film that like if you haven't seen this film, pick it up. It's yeah um, one of the one of the great. I actually saw this theatrically. It's one of those uh, you know 
Nice. Um, one of the great um, cinema experiences, like, ever, if you, if you do get to see that on the big screen. But I just kind of like films with snow, so there is that as well. <laughs> it, it does definitely add a different context to a film, to have it in more of a barren, snow-covered kind of environment. It definitely does. I think my next pick is going to be uh, Lauren Visser, played by M. Emmett Walsh from Blood Simple in 1984. Oh, yeah. Coen Brothers film, got it, yeah. I love this performance. I'm actually looking at a write-up I did for uh, my blog, and I'm just going to read what I wrote here. <laughs> if you can't steal from yourself, who can you steal from, really? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's good. Uh, not an evil mastermind or really that much of a threatening character in person, Lauren Visser is an overweight, low-rent, and generally slimy-looking redneck private investigator who has no trouble breaking the law for his employer of the moment. He's even willing to kill. He sees a chance to turn a situation totally in his favor with no strings attached by killing his current employer, Julian Marty, played by Dan Hyeda, a roadhouse owner who had hired him to follow his possibly unfaithful wife and later, after confirmation, asking Visser to kill her and her lover. Visser's plan is to frame Marty's intended victim for his murder and he almost manages to make it work. Visser is undoing is the fact that he's not quite as sharp as he thinks he is, and the people he's playing like puppets are not too bright either. Basically, a spiraling web of confusion makes things worse and worse for everyone involved because Visser decides to get cute and try to go into business for himself. And I, I, I just love his performance. He's very casual, but very cunning. He's He's got that sort of lizard brain kind of thing going on where he's always thinking about himself and how he can manipulate people and eventually it becomes his undoing because he runs into people who are too stupid for him to predict what they're actually going to do. Yeah. <laughs> no, definitely. Um, Blood Simple, uh, I mean, noir, even neo-noir, you know, the, the kind of more modern noir pictures is such mm-hmm. a, a great genre to mine for these because you can play these villains and, the, you know, these kind of human-scale villains in such a uh, dynamic way. It's just, you know, when you think about these things, you know, it's just, it's so, uh, no, that's a great performance. Um, it's been a long time since I've seen Blood Simple. I really need to, to watch that again. Um, I actually have two Coen Brothers films on my list. Don't mind, I'm just going to throw them both out there for yeah, you. Yeah, go ahead. I mean, there are a lot of great villains in Coen Brothers. Um, one of them was the one I just wrote down. Uh, Javier Bardem is Anton Sugar and No Country for Old Men. Yeah, he's um, on my list, yeah. Kind of one of those obvious choices. Like, once I thought of it, I went, shit, that's got to go on my list. But the other one is maybe a little bit less obvious, and that's uh, Lee Mitch Macy from Fargo. Yeah, um, he's on my list as well. Connecting back to that snow uh, thing. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> we can talk about Javier Bardem. That's such a, I mean, it's such an obvious, like, that's such a, like, cold, calculated yeah. killer kind of thing, you know. Um, and that's straight from, I don't know if you've read the novel. But, yeah, I have. Uh, yeah, the, the Cormac McCarthy novel. It's straight from that. I mean, you know, the Coen Brothers basically just turned the film to the the novel. So it's uh, it's brilliant either way, and the kind of sparse exteriors. And he, ahead, he, he he's presented as a force of nature essentially. Like spends his entire time considering himself an agent for fate and chance. At the end of the movie, it kind of uh, betrays him. Right. Well, uh, there there is. A, Again, we keep talking about films that we should really cover. I, I, there is this kind of um, reading of the film where what eventually causes Sugar's downfall is that uh, because if you remember, he um, you know his his shtick is that he makes the person flip the coin, mm-hmm. and you flip the coin, and then heads you die or tails you live or whatever it was, and the the woman refuses to flip the coin, and then you know you don't see him kill her, but you see him walk out and he checks his shoes. 
but she was refusing to flip the coin. So essentially, he killed her without. So once he steps away from being a force of nature, he is now subject to the forces of nature. And yeah. two seconds later, he's hit by a car. You know, uh, yeah. so so I uh, there there is that kind of resonance there. There is that kind of theory about the the film, which I I, I like a lot actually. Yeah. So I wanted to bring it up. Moving, uh, moving just to uh, to Fargo, to William H Macy's character. You know, again with that that kind of noir kind of kind of imagery and that kind of noir um, idea. I mean, you, no one in this film is innocent. I mean, there are innocents in the film, but but none of your your protagonists is really innocent. Mm-hmm. Um, and arguably, you know, <laughs> uh, Peter Stormare is the real the real bad guy of the film. The real serial killer is that is yeah. that character. Um, but I, I I chose William H Macy uh, because in interviews he was kind of asked because he plays this film so blankly and he he is he is such a his face is as bland as the you know the flat plains of North Dakota. Um, <laughs> but, the the way he actually said in interviews that he he kept asking the the Cohen brothers like should I play it like should I be more and it's like no no play it as flat as you possibly can because the whole point is this guy he's going through the motions of his life he's he's got this plan for you know this used car lot this this you know he's trying to build some people his his father in law out of some money all ends up into this thing but he has no moral feeling about it whatsoever and that's that's the real monstrosity of the film I think mm-hmm. is is that he just he just does not give a shit. Or even Steve Buscemi's character gives a shit. You know? Yeah. He cares what he's been doing. And that's so, the problem that's the that's the problem with Steve Buscemi's character. He gives a shit and that gets him killed. <laughs> yeah, no, it absolutely gets him killed. You know yeah. um he should have just should have just given him the car, man. Yeah. You know, like done. But anyway. yeah, um yeah, William H. Macy's performance in that, I kinda when I when I watched that the first time, it reminded me of uh Jack Lemon from Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Yeah. As as sort of that sort of same kind of salesman who had fallen on bad times and was basically spiraling out of control career wise. Basically just that character gone bad to the point where he would do anything to to get ahead he's constantly trying to put a brave smiling fake face on everything he does but deep underneath he's just kind of boiling things are going wrong and wrong and wrong and the stress is finally gonna get him at some point but uh, a great performance and he definitely is the villain i mean you know he he just keeps he just keeps trying to cover up his own tracks and he keeps failing miserably and uh it is a great performance Peter Stramar, he was also on my list as well. Both, both these guys were on my list, and I, I like that character because he's very uh, quiet and unassuming. And then, d- then they get to that scene where they pass that car and they have to kill two people in the car, and it's just he just does it so coldly, and all of a sudden it's like it just changes the game at all totally in the he, film. He, he's just that straight up professional, you know. Yeah. and that's the and that's the point. Like you know, it's it's them or me, and so like. Oh, I, I don't I don't even know if he's a professional. He's he is uh, the same sort of character as like Mr. Blonde in um, Reservoir Dogs. He's just a pure psychopath who you can't trust his motivations at all. Like, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I mean, I thought about putting. I actually, I I limited myself to one Tarantino character as well, and uh, that wasn't the one I picked. But I mean, I would argue that Mr. Mr. Blonde, Michael Madsen's character in Reservoir Dogs. The whole point of Reservoir Dogs is he should never have been on that team because he is a psychopath. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the clearer analog to uh, Mr. White, who does what he has to do, um, Harvey Keitel's character, yeah. who does what he has to do because he has to do it, but isn't you know necessarily emotionally involved, whereas Mr. Blonde likes causing pain. 
I think my reading of Peter Stamari's character in Fargo is that this is it, he just doesn't care. Um, in that sense, he and William H. Macy are more similar than they are different. They just go about their things in different ways. Oh, that's cool. I like that. I like that, actually. No, actually, I kind of agree with that. Um, I kind of maybe think the comparison to Mr. White isn't quite as apt, but um, I won't argue it too much. I'll I'll just say, like, I kind of feel like uh, Peter Stormare's character is the kind of guy that if the per- if the people if the people were hiring him and they actually knew what he was like, they would not hire him at all. Oh right, no, no, I agree. Um, maybe more like Mr. Pink. Sorry that that because Mr. White has that moral uh, side to him. Um, Mr. Pink, or Steve Buscemi's character in Reservoir yeah. Dogs is the uh, is probably the closest comparison because he is just like I do what I have to do in order to you know yeah do my job. So. All right, guys, we're gonna cut it off there. When we got into this conversation on the night that we recorded, we didn't quite expect it to go as long as it did. So I'm actually going to be splitting this episode into three different parts for three different episodes. also have a conversation to do with Paul as well on the same topic that I'm probably going to tack on to part three. So those will be coming up in the next few weeks, and we'll still be recording regular episodes as well. I'm not sure if I'm going to put up one or two episodes a week for a little while or if I'm just going to space these out, but they will be coming up. We hope you enjoy them. Thanks very much. We'll see you later. Bye-bye.
Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For our other episodes, links to Daniel, Paul, and Lee's other stuff, and links to some great podcasts of similar interest, visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can leave us comments on the site or directly email us. We listen and respond to everything. Thank you. Drive through.